Our epistle lesson and sermon text is from, again, from Romans 7. I'm only going to read verses 5 and 6 from the handout again. For when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions that were stimulated by the law were at work in our members so that we bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were held down, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit rather than the oldness of the written code. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for bringing us from darkness into the light, from the flesh into the spirit. We thank you that you have given us a new head from Adam into Christ. And we ask that you would help us, even as we study this text, to be comforted and convicted by your calling on our lives as those who have been redeemed, those who have been transferred from one dominion to another, from one kingdom to another. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe the glorious gospel and the glorious call on those who have been saved by the gospel. And when we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. Try to get something out of my eye real quick. Our text today is Romans 7, 5, and 6. And standing right in the middle of the passage, this, these two verses, connecting these two verses together are two glorious words. Two words that are infused with gospel significance, at least in this context. Paul's already used these two transitional words in his letter to the Romans. Once in chapter 3 and again in chapter 6. Let me read those verses aloud and see if you can figure out what, what the two words I'm referring to are. First, Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, to which the law and the prophets bear witness. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all and on all who believe. Now, Romans 6.22. But now, having been set free from sin and enslaved to God... You obtain your fruit, leading to further sanctification, further holiness. And the outcome is eternal life. What are the two words? That's right. But now, I heard a few people. But now, and Paul uses these two words, same two words in the Greek, as well as in, I think, every English translation, to point emphatically to the miraculous transformation that has taken place and continues to take place 
and the life of anyone who has been united to Christ. In the first half of, of today's text, Paul speaks of the, Christian, of the Christian's old way of existing. Verse 5 says, For when we were in the flesh, our sinful passions that were stimulated by the law were at work in our members so that we bore fruit for death. And so that describes our life in the old Adam, our bondage. But before we were born again, we were in the flesh. Our sinful passions dominated our body and soul. Anytime we ran into God's law, it aggravated our sin, stimulated, aroused our sin even further. And the result was that we bore fruit, bad fruit, fruit for death, Paul says. Well, that was then. That was before we were saved. But now, Paul says in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were held down so that we serve in the newness of the spirit rather than the oldness of the written code. Either you've been released from the law or the law is still holding you down, oppressing you, aggravating you, stimulating your wickedness, arousing your sinful passions. Either you're serving in the freedom of the spirit or you're still a slave to the law. The difference between an unbeliever and a person who has been given a new heart, between a, the difference between a, a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness, between a person who is still married to sin and a person who has been married to Christ, as Paul puts it in verse 4, the difference between these two people has to do with how each one responds to the law, responds to God's law when they encounter it, when God's law meets them. That's, that's the difference. So if we look at that, we're going to look, be looking at the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, a regenerate person and an unregenerate person. This morning, as we move through these two verses, we'll ask the text three questions. The first will be, is being a carnal Christian a thing? The, the word carnal means fleshly. Of the flesh. Is, is there such a thing as a Christian who is led by his flesh? A Christian who is dominated by his sinful passions. Controlled by the, the flesh of the old Adam. Second, is the law a bad thing? So first, is being a carnal Christian a thing? Second, is the law a bad thing? If the law ends up stimulating sinful passions and leading a person to produce even more bad fruit, fruit for death, then is the law a good thing or a bad thing? And finally, the third question is, what place does the law have in the new covenant? More specifically, where does the law fit for the new covenant believer and the life of a new covenant believer? And that question is a little ambiguous, and we'll talk about it at the end. So first, is being a carnal Christian a thing? We all know the apostle speaks of unbelievers who are controlled by the flesh and believers who are controlled by the spirit. But is there a third category? Can, can you be a believer who is controlled by the flesh? 
Okay, we know you can't be an unbeliever who's controlled by the Spirit, but can you be a believer who is controlled by the flesh? Well, Paul indicates that there is no third category, just to give the answer away right up front. In verse 5, he says that existing in the flesh is a thing of the past for the Christian. For when we were, past tense, in the flesh, our sinful passions that were stimulated by the law were at work in our members so that we bore, past tense, we bore fruit for death. When Paul says in the flesh, he means in the old Adam. Okay, we've, we've talked extensively about that. I trust that about everyone has been here for at least one of the sermons where we talked about the old man, Adam. And so in the flesh is synonymous with being in the old Adam. Remember the two heads of humanity back in Romans chapter 5. So either you're still united to the first Adam and enslaved to sin, or if you've been converted to Christ, you're united to the last Adam, Jesus. If you're in the old Adam, you're in the flesh. Being in the flesh is the opposite in, in Romans. It's the opposite of being in the spirit. Over in Romans 8, Paul's going to flesh this out, if you will. He's, he's, he's going to say that saved people don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So if, you, if you're the note-taking type, then write down Romans 8, 4 to 9. I just quoted from Romans 8, 4. And that's where Paul explains the difference between living carnally and living spiritually, living in the flesh, living in the spirit. So listen or follow along as I continue reading from Romans 8, picking up in verse 5 and reading through verse 9. For those who live according to the flesh, this is going to give us a def an idea, a definition, an understanding of what Paul means in Romans 7 when he says in the flesh. So listen carefully. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, to be carnally minded, is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, to be spiritually minded, is life and peace. And so he's again talking about being enslaved to sin, enslaved to God. In Adam, in Christ, married to sin, married to Christ. And now he's talking about in terms of being in the flesh or in the spirit. Having your mind on the spirit, mind your mind on the things of the flesh. The difference is death. It's the difference between death and life and peace. Verse 7, for the carnal mind, the mind that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. Some translations say is at enmity with God. What he means by that is, is hostile to God and his law. That's how you know that you're ho someone is hostile to God. They hate God and they hate his word. They hate his law. They hate his requirements. They, they may not say they hate him, but their life indicates that they do. The carnal mind is hostile to God. For it does not submit to the law of God. You see, Paul clarifies. That's what it means to be hostile to God. It doesn't mean that you say that you hate God. It doesn't mean that you say you hate God's law. It means that you do not submit to God's law. 
it indeed, it, the carnal mind, cannot submit to God's law. Verse, this is all Paul here. That's Paul. Verse 8, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're unable, Paul says. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, here's the condition, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. And of course, Paul says in this chapter that the way you know that the spirit of God dwells in you is if you submit to God's law. Okay, so that's, that's, that's going to help us understand in Romans 7, when Paul uses this language that we don't use every day about being in the flesh. Paul's operating on the assumption that there are only two categories of people. In the first category are unbelievers who walk according to the flesh because they are in the flesh. They are not in the spirit and the spirit is not dwelling in them. These folks don't they don't belong to Christ even if they've been baptized and they go to church every week and they are doctrinally sound. Because they don't have the spirit of Christ dwelling in them, they can't sub submit to God's law no matter how hard they try. Remember, Paul's writing to the church here. This is an exhortation for people sitting in the pews for us. They are spiritually unable, Paul says. They need to humble themselves and get saved. They, they need to die to themselves, collapse in God's love, and be born again. Only then will they be able to keep God's law when they've come to the end of themselves. And the second category are genuine believers who walk according to the Spirit because they are in the Spirit and the Spirit, Paul says, dwells in them. These people belong to Christ. And even though the flesh of the old Adam still lingers in them, they don't live in it. They don't walk in it. They don't wallow in it. They constantly do battle with sin. And gradually, week in and week out, year in and year out, gradually and steadily, they put to death the old Adam. Adam's lingering flesh. Just as the person without the Spirit is unable to submit to God's law, so also the person with the Spirit is unable to submit to the reign, the dominion, the lordship of sin. Those are, those are the only two categories of people that Paul knows, that the Scriptures know. The, the enemy, the enemy, your enemy, would, would like you to believe there's a third category that allows a person to call himself a Christian even though there is little or no evidence that the Spirit is at work in him. Even though there's little or no evidence that he delights to do God's law, there's no evidence of what Paul calls being in the newness of the Spirit in verse 6. But there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, a Christian who lives in the flesh. There's, there is such a thing, so hear, hear me clearly here. There, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is such a thing as a sinful Christian, a Christian who daily sins in grievous ways in his attitudes and in his actions. Th that's every Christian. 
every believer is a wretched sinner. In fact, the holiest, most righteous person, most righteous Christian on earth generates more than enough wickedness. His, his heart spews out more than enough vile thoughts and actions on any given day to deserve God's eternal wrath in hell. Still, there's no such thing as a Christian who, is, who has become content to let his flesh control him, to let his sin rule over him and master him. There's no such thing as a Christian who is at peace with the lingering flesh of the old Adam. Those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them extend no hospitality to the sinful passions of the flesh. They are unable to. You're unable to. Just as those living in the flesh are unable to extend hospitality to the Spirit in their own power, so also those living in the Spirit will be unable to extend hospitality to the flesh and its sinful passions. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. You people of God are temples of the Holy Spirit. If God's Spirit lives in you, He won't allow you to, be, to, to welcome the enemy into His home. The Spirit is never content to dwell alongside indwelling sin. When the Spirit invades a human heart and takes up residence there, He begins His campaign against indwelling sin. And He never stops waging war against the lingering flesh and its sinful passions. He never stops bombing enemy strongholds. He never stops sabotaging the, the forces of evil that are still at work in the, in the believer, even in the believer. And the Spirit continues this war, this work of sanctification until the believer dies and goes to heaven where his spirit Hebrews says, is finally perfected and made sinless or until Jesus returns. Are you content to live with certain sins? Have you just accepted certain attitudes, certain patterns of speech, certain actions that dishonor God? Do you make peace treaties with sin? This week, ask God to search your heart and to show you where you might be tempted to extend hospitality to the flesh and its sinful desires. Also, ask God to use this text, even this text, to confirm to you whether you are still in the flesh or in the newness of the Spirit. Whenever a person who has the Spirit of God living in him reads a reads a, a passage like this or, or listens to a sermon like this, Lord willing, he will be both encouraged and convicted. Encouraged because the Spirit bears witness to his spirit that he is a child of God, that he does have new life, that he has the newness of life and the newness of the Spirit at work in him and in his members 
beginning from his heart and going out. And convicted because the same spirit continues to expose his lingering sin, even as he reads a passage like this one about the flesh, about our former way of life, and the spirit's work in the new person, the new man. So the answer to the first question, is there such a thing as a carnal Christian, is no, an adamant no, an emphatic no. Being a carnal Christian, being a born-again believer who walks according to the flesh is not a scriptural thing. Second, is the law a bad thing? Paul refers to the law over 20 times, I think 23 times, in Romans 7 alone. So there's more to come as we continue working through the passage. It's, you could say it's the theme of chapter 7. But the way Paul talks about the law might give the impression that the law is a negative thing, a bad thing, the enemy. He says the law is something that a person needs to die to. He needs to be freed from. And only when you're freed from the law can you walk in that newness of the Spirit. Why? Because he says the law teams up with sin to oppress sinners and stimulate sinful passions. Well, if that's the case, does, then how is the law a good thing? Is it now a bad thing in the New Covenant? Well, the witness of the Old Testament and the New Testament is clear and undivided on this question. Let's start in the Old Testament. We could go to every section of Scripture in the Old Testament. The, the Law of Moses, the poetical books, the prophetic books, historical books. Let's just go to the Psalms and look at first at Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. A hundred psalms later, in Psalm 119, scriptures again exalt the law. Verse 12 of Psalm 119. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Verse 16. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Verse 77. Your law is my delight. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day all day long. Verse 136, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Verse 142, your law is the truth. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. And verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. But this isn't just an Old Testament perspective. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 8, but we know that the law is good. This is still true after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews 2, 2 says that the law was the word spoken by angels 
Acts 7.38 speaks of the law as living oracles, even after Christ. They're living oracles that instruct us toward righteousness, in righteousness. John defines sin in 1 John 3.4 as, quote, a transgression of the law. That's God's law. But we really don't even need to leave the book of Romans to gain a new covenant perspective on the law of God. At the end of chapter 3, after Paul had championed salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, he asks in verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Does, does the gospel of grace through faith nullify the law, make it nothing? Is that what we're doing here with the gospel of grace? He, his, he responds to his own question at the very end of Romans 3. May it never be. No way. Rather, we uphold the law. And so Paul's whole project here, he says, is actually an effort to uphold the law, to put it, uh, to put it in its right perspective in Christ. Actually, we don't even need to leave Romans 7 to learn how Paul and the New Testament authors viewed God's law. Down in verse 12, it's not on your handout, but in verse 12, Paul writes, therefore the law is holy and the commandments and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's talking about the commandment that stimulates the sinner to sin. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So he uses that word delight there, which is what David uses, the Psalms use. So we should still delight in God's law. We should still uphold God's law. And later, Paul's going to use the language of fulfilling the law, which we, Paul says we are now able to do because we have the Spirit. He doesn't say that in Romans 7, but that's what he's going to say in Romans 8. The law of God is pure, good, wonderful, righteous. The problem Paul's addressing in Romans 7 is not a problem with the law. The problem has to do with what happens when the perfect, just, and holy law meets sinful, unredeemed human nature, which Paul calls the flesh, the old Adam. For an unbeliever who's still in the flesh, the law is the power of sin. That's, that's straight from 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 56, the sting, of the, the sting of death is sin, Paul writes, and the power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. To a carnal person, the law is a powerful weapon that defeats its own demands. Did you hear that? For the carnal, in the carnal person, for the carnal person, the law is a powerful, a strong instrument or weapon that defeats in the unbeliever its own demands. It demands something, but then it defeats the person who hears that demand because there's no spirit, there's no life, there's no ability. The law demands holiness, but when an unsaved person encounters this demand, when a person who's not born again encounters the command to be holy as God is holy, he's unable, the un unbeliever is unable to do it. Instead of keeping the law, he's crushed by it, oppressed by it. 
ruled by it. And so Paul is all about being freed from that, being freed from that miserable situation, that miserable enslavement. And the reason for this, Paul says, and we, and we talked about this extensively last week. If, if the sermon's online, you can go and, and hear this more. But we'll just say briefly, it's because the law is only on the, it's only an outside force for the unbeliever. It hasn't been written on his heart. It's not an internal reality. For the person who's not born again, the law of God is an external force that defeats him. It's a power that he's unable to overcome. But for the born again believer, the law is an internal imprint, inscription, that works its way out in the form of spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, good fruit, fruit for God. These are Pauline terms. Let me say that again. For the person who's not born again, the law of God is an external force that defeats him. But for the born again believer, the law is an internal imprint that works its way out in the form of spiritual fruit. The evidence of salvation. Sanctification, we could call it. And this brings us to the third question. What place does the law have in the new covenant? Or more specifically, if the law is a good thing, and it is, we've established that, what place does it have in the life of a new covenant believer? Now, I said this question is a little ambiguous. It it can mean a couple different things. You might have been thinking that this was going to be the part in the sermon where, where we consider the differences between how the law applied to to Old Covenant believers and how it applies now to New Covenant believers in Christ or or something like that. And that, that, that kind of discussion is good and helpful and even necessary. But there's a more fundamental reality that we need to appreciate and and grasp and internalize. You see, the special place that the law has in the New Covenant According to the Bible, the special place that the, new, that, that the law has in the New Covenant is not on stone tablets, not on the walls of our government institutions, not on the walls of, or the doorposts of our homes, not even on the pages of Scripture. The special place that the law has in the New Covenant and the place that it will have for all eternity is on the heart of every new covenant believer. That's where it's been inscribed for eternity. Six centuries before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And that includes us, right? Remember Romans 11, we've been grafted in to Israel. We are a part of the new Israel, the Israel of God. And so this new covenant is not just for Israel, but that's the language that the prophet uses living seven seven centuries before the church, before Paul wrote Romans 11. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here it is. Listen, here's the covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it, the law, on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Really, you could read through verse 34. There's a past paragraph there. I didn't read to the end. But this is the classic prophecy of the new covenant in Christ. And did did you hear God's promise in that passage? In the new covenant, God promises that he will, that, that, that the law will no longer mainly be an external reality or force. It'll no longer primarily be a written code copied down on stones and scrolls or on our doorposts, on our walls. It'll mainly be an internal reality that is put into the minds and written onto the hearts of believers. Rather than being merely a demand from the outside, It'll primarily be a desire from the inside. Did you hear that? Rather than being primarily a demand from the outside, it'll be instead a desire that wells up from the inside. God will write the law in the hearts of his people so that they not only can submit to it, but also love to submit to it. Now there's an there's an eschatological and end times dimension to that prophecy because he goes on to say that at a certain point, there's going, to be a, there's going to be a point where everybody has this and you won't be able to find anybody who doesn't know God, who doesn't have the law written on their hearts and there'll be no need anymore to teach or to evangelize. And so ultimately this, this prophecy looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth when the new covenant is brought to its complete fulfillment at the return of Christ. But that future reality is an already reality in some sense. And the new covenant, New Testament makes that clear, especially in the book of Hebrews. But Jesus himself says he has instituted the new covenant in his blood. So the new covenant has been inaugurated. The, new, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. We wait for more, but even now, this is true. The law is being written on the hearts of God's people so that they not only can submit to God's law, but they love to submit to God's law. But you see, God doesn't just write the law on our hearts. If he were to write his law on the heart of a person who has not been born again by the Spirit of God, that person would would not be any better off. It wouldn't take. Okay? It wouldn't take. And when I use that language of being born again, that comes not just from John 3, but first from John 3 in the New Testament where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And when he's when he tells Nicodemus that he's borrowing language from Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's new covenant language. And and one of the passages that that Jesus is drawing from and that Paul is drawing from here in our text in Romans 7 and why I keep using that language 
is because they're drawing from it a, another prophet, Ezekiel. And so what Ezekiel teaches us is that before God writes the law in our hearts, he gives us a new heart so that it'll take, so that the law of God can receive it, so that the inscription will take. Ezekiel was Jeremiah's contemporary, and he also prophesied about the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God makes this promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That's our spirit, little s spirit. He's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now that doesn't mean, that's not a bad thing there. Heart of flesh in this context means a malleable heart, a, mar a heart that can receive God's law rather than reject it. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, big S spirit, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, move you to be careful to keep my laws. Again, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. So we don't just need the law written on our hearts. We need new hearts. We need, we need the Spirit of God. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, and without a new heart and a new spirit, the law would do us no good. In a different place, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul says, God has qualified us as ministers of the new covenant. He's talking about, Paul's talking about him and his fellow ministers of a new covenant, which is not of the written code, but of the spirit. For the written code does what? You may remember, what does the written code, the law do? The letter of the, it kills. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. So without the Spirit, when the law comes in, it kills. Where there's no new heart, no new Spirit, no Holy Spirit, the law kills. But where there's Spirit, there is life, Paul says. The Spirit gives life. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, those on his left hand, his left side, will be those with old hearts of stone, hearts that never changed or never transformed. Not, not a one of them on the left will have the law in their minds or written on their hearts. Not a one will have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, as Paul says. Those on his right will be those with new hearts and new spirits. The law will be in their minds and on their hearts, and the Spirit of God will be in them. Now, there will be people in both camps, on both sides, there will be people who were members in good standing of Bible-believing churches, Reformed churches, there will be people in both camps who, in the words of Hebrews 6, had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had shared in the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Paul goes on to say that they fell away, though. 
Some fell away that, ta that tasted those things, experienced those things. You see, the former church members on the left will be those on the left of Christ, will be those who never let these wonderful spiritual realities penetrate their heart. They only were external realities. Only the ones on his right will, will have tasted these gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit with living, saving faith. The ones on the left will be told, depart from me, I didn't actually know you. The ones on the right will be told, well done, you are a good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. This week, meditate on verses six, verses 5 and 6 of Romans 7 and ask God to search your heart and confirm to you which side you're on. Consider whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit. Those are the most wonderful things to know and to be confirmed in because if you're confirmed that you are in the spirit, you are confirmed and assured of your salvation. If you are confirmed that you're in the flesh, then you know it's God confirming, convicting. You need to repent. You need to be saved. Ask yourself, do I bear fruit for God or fruit for death? Are my sinful passions stimulated when they encounter the law? Or is the spirit leading me to new heights because he has caused me to love his law and to submit to it? Is the law oppressing me from the outside or, or do I delight in doing it because it's written on my insides? If you're a spirit-filled member of the new covenant, this text should bring you great joy, Christian joy. Not, not, it should, it's not going to make you comfortable the way we use the word comfortable, but it's going to bring you great joy and comfort It'll simultaneously comfort you and convict you. That's what the Word of God does to, to, the, to the people of God. And both of these are causes to rejoice. On the one hand, it will comfort you because the fruit of the Spirit in your life is evidence that you are no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit. You're bearing fruit for God rather than fruit for death. It will confirm that you have been born of the spirit that your spirit has been born of God and that the law is written on the new heart that he has given to you on the other hand this passage will convict you to continue fighting the good fight in the power of the spirit resting in the power of the spirit resting in your union with Christ it will expose your remaining corruption It'll expose the lingering flesh of the old Adam. Again, not, not always enjoyable realities, but realities that bring joy and satisfaction to the believer because it's the work of the Spirit of God in the believer. Exposing the sinful passions that continue to rear their ugly heads in your attitudes and in your actions. So people of God, let the comfort of this text drive you to worship and to gratitude for the salvation that God has accomplished 
for you and the sanctification that the Spirit continues to accomplish in you. And let the conviction of the Spirit that stems from this text drive you to repentance and to new fruit for God. Let's pray and ask for His help in doing this. Our God, we need You to continue the work that You've begun in us and to bear good fruit in us. Oh Lord, we desire to bear fruit for You. Accomplish that in us. Give us greater desire to obey You, to submit to Your law. Make us to delight more this week in Your law, to meditate on it more than we have, and to not only to submit to it, but also to love it. Accomplish this, Father, in us, by the power of Your Spirit, and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.